thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me put a question to us as we begin this morning. What do we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come? Or more pointedly, when we pray, thy kingdom come, how do we expect the Father to bring the kingdom? When we pray, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, we pray, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we expect the Father to actually do that? This morning, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 13, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And chapter 13 is somewhat of a turning point for Jesus. Uh, Matthew has recorded just a a few parables up to this point. Uh, The first instance that we're most familiar with is the parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about building your life uh, on the rock or on the sand. Um, But here in chapter 13, we have seven parables, seven different parables, and they're all describing uh, the nature of the kingdom of God. All seven of these parables that we come to right now are describing the nature of the kingdom of God. And this first one, which is probably very likely the most famous of all the parables in the Bible, is the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower gives specific attention to how the kingdom of God comes. It gives specific attention to how the prayer, your kingdom come, what the Father does in response to us praying that, how he brings the kingdom to us. The kingdom of God comes to us through this image of a sower. And this sower is casting a seed. And this seed is the word of God. So we have three points this morning. The seed of the word the seed of power, the seed of weakness. The seed of the word, of power, of weakness. And young people, if you would like to make a tally mark on your notes for a key word this morning, uh, the key word this morning is seed. Seed. Let me read the text to us. And then we will pray, and then we will unpack it. Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. 
some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for the sowing of seed. The seed of the word that was manifest in the God-man Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would illuminate your holy scriptures this morning to us, that you would make them become clear to us, that we would see them with clarity and perspicuity with the eyes of our heart. And as we look and peer into your word, we would see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And our hearts would treasure him and behold him and adore him and live for him alone. We ask this great impossible thing that can only be done by you and your power of your spirit to be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one, the seed of the word. So the the key here for understanding this parable is understanding and listening to verse nine. He who hears has ears, let him hear. And the, the point here is not some kind of rhetorical flourish that says something like, hey, get the point. The point 
of this verse unlocks the meaning of the entire passage. And the point of the entire passage is that listening to the words of Jesus is the key to life itself. Listening to the words of Jesus is the very key to life itself. Listen to how Mark says it, because all three gospel writers take into account the parable of the sower. Mark says, and he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Luke says, take care then how you hear. Or King James says in Luke, take heed then to how you hear. There's great care and attention given to hearing and listening to the words of Jesus. So much so that they are the key to understanding and living life itself. And the seed, the seed that this sower is sowing is the word of God. And the soil, the soil where the seed falls and finds itself are our ears or our hearts. Ears, hearts that are attentively listening to the words of Jesus, those and that are the good soil. The ears and the hearts that are distracted, that are consumed with other things, that are casual, that are diffused in concentration, these are the unfruitful soils of the parable. Which brings us to the first principle. And the first principle is that the key attitude of life is the attitude of listening. The key attitude, the key disposition, the key demeanor of the Christian is the disposition, is the attitude, is the demeanor of listening. And that is a remarkable statement to say that the kingdom of God comes by hearing, by attentively listening. Because earthly kingdoms don't come this way. Earthly kingdoms come by coercion. They come by force. They come to listening, excuse me, they come by uh, a powerful leader, a powerful force coming in like a hammer or a wrecking ball. The kingdom of this world come by getting a great hearing rather than giving a hearing. Great leaders are good at walking into a room and talking and getting people to do what they want to do. They're bad listeners at their core. They bring their kingdom by coercion and force. If they listened too much, they wouldn't be decisive enough. You get your power in earthly kingdoms by talking and getting your way. This is quite the conundrum for a preacher. In fact, it's very convicting in studying and thinking and meditating on this text this week. pastor, a leader, an elder, is to lead in listening, is to lead in listening to the voice of Jesus. A leader, a pastor, a preacher is to lead in listening to other people. Not leading with coercion and force. Not leading like a wrecking ball or a hammer. 
But leading a church, leading a congregation, leading a people to experiencing the life-changing, transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ by listening. Fathers, husbands, this means that our task as leaders is to lead in listening. Lead in listening to the words and the voice of Jesus himself. To lead in listening to our spouses. When I was a kid, my mom always told me that God was going to give me a lot of girls. <laughs> and she is not a prophetess, but I, I have six of them now. <laughs> so maybe she is. And she said, because you need to learn to listen. <laughs> you need to learn compassion to listen to somebody else. You need your heart to be molded and changed and to become softer. And that's what listening does. So leaders, husbands, fathers, we must lead in listening, lead in listening to Jesus, lead in listening to each other, which is so crucial for where our local church is at this juncture. Because the temptation as a leader is to lead like the world does, lead like a hammer, lead like a wrecking ball, and just set things in order how they're supposed to be. But Jesus would have us as leaders lead in listening. Some of us as fathers and husbands are wrecking balls. We don't listen. We think our authority or our manhood or whatever is diminished by listening. But the kingdom of God doesn't come like a wrecking ball. It comes like a seed. It's tiny at first, but it slowly transforms. You see, wrecking balls and hammers, they smash things externally. There's immediate external results. But seeds, think about it. Seeds change things internally. They change things from the inside out. It's completely counterintuitive to us. It's completely counterintuitive to us. But, you know, you've heard the illustration, right, of looking at an acorn. Within one acorn is the power of, an of the life of an entire oak tree. And you could extrapolate that principle even further to say that within one little acorn is the life, the potential of all the trees in all the earth. To spread like wildfire through the entire world. Or maybe you've heard the illustration of, of an old man, of a preacher walking through an old cemetery and coming across this big marble ornate cemetery, uh, uh, tombstone that must have been for a, a great man hundreds of years ago. Maybe a king, maybe a nobleman, maybe a very rich man. But at some point along the way, a seed had fallen into a little crack 
And many years later, that seed had grown up into a tree and had bust that marble tomb apart. Or the sidewalks in Portland. I live in the hood, so I don't have a sidewalk on my street. I do have a curb, so I'm not totally in the hood. (laughs) I don't know. It's not even in my notes. (laughs) But you've seen the sidewalks in Portland as the trees come up and, and, and the tree comes up and the roots come up and they pop that concrete up. Or even in our own garden, you know, you, you, you pl- what are those little uh, annuals called? Are those petunias? The little cheap ones and the little... I can't get things to grow when we want it to, right? I'm looking at our yard the other day, and out of the concrete is a, is a, is a petunia coming up through the middle of the, cr- of, of the crack and the expansion joint in the concrete. I don't get it. But in the power of the seed, there is great and massive potential. But do we believe this? Do we see it in our own hearts? Do we see it in our own lives? And some of us, many of us, I've been there, have been stuck and are stuck. Maybe you are stuck right now because this principle hasn't been laid down deep in your heart. The nature of this, of the word of the seed taking root and growing slowly, being tiny at first. John the Baptist was in the same camp. He came to Jesus and his disciples and said, are, his disciples said, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? You understand the dilemma that he found himself in, right? Essentially he's saying, if you're the king, if you're the coming Messiah, if you're the rightful king of Israel, why am I in jail? Why am I on the verge here of being beheaded? Or just make it personal. If Jesus is the king... And I'm his servant, I'm his subject, I'm his bond slave, I've given myself to him. Why are people so cruel to me? If I'm a Christian and I'm a servant of the king, why am I suffering? Because that's not how my kingdom works, Jesus says. He says, my kingdom is not a wrecking ball. He said, my kingdom is the seed of the word. And the message of the word is the most astounding message imaginable. It's that the greatest king came down from the highest throne to be forsaken and crucified. The one whom angels revered is the one who came down. And he suffered, and he bled, and he died. And he was placed in the grave. His disciples were guilt-stricken. They were crushed. They were perplexed. They were destroyed, almost. But he rose from the grave. That word, that seed of the word, is the only thing that will sustain us and will answer those questions. If I'm a Christian, 
and I am a servant of the king, why am I suffering? Because it is completely counterintuitive, upside down to the kingdoms of this world. And the world doesn't have answers for these kinds of questions. Why am I suffering? Why is there such cruelty? But only the word of God is the resource to us. So let me challenge all of us, challenge especially you young people, to build your life on the rock bed of the word of God. Because the crisis will come. The challenge will come. The cruelty, the suffering will come. And if you don't have the resources of the seed of the word, it will destroy you. It absolutely will destroy you. Some place that I've been reading and meditating this week and these weeks and these months are places like 2 Timothy where Paul encourages this young minister. He says, you have followed my message, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings, the things that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet from all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Lord is the one who rescued me, is what Paul says to Timothy. Later on in the letter, chapter 4, the end of chapter 4 is, 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 is full of different names. And there's some names of people that did great harm to Paul. He mentions Demas, he mentions Alexander the coppersmith. He mentions names of people that were very dear to him and kind to him. He speaks of Luke. But even in the midst of that, he says this. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and rescued me. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. If you didn't have places like 2 Timothy 4.17 that says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. You wouldn't have anywhere else to go. You would be utterly decimated and destroyed on the suffering rocks of life. But it's the seed of the word that grows ever so slowly but ever so steadily that gives the ballast and the hope and even the answers for the things of life. I should transition here to my other points. I just want to say one more thing. Of all the uh, descriptions that could be given of a farmer. You could say that a farmer is a, is a cultivator. You could say that a farmer is a waterer. He's a fertilizer. But he only does one thing one time a year, from what I understand. And that's sowing. He casts his seed. That's not the, it's not even a huge part of his job description. 
If you were going to write a list of the, of the more extensive parts of his job description, you would talk about watering or fertilizing or pulling weeds or harvesting. For what I would understand, the sowing maybe takes a few hours once a year. And yet, and yet here, God says, in all the other activities that he does of, of sustaining the universe, the cosmos as we know it, he says that the description here, the most apt description here, is one of a sower is one who gives his word down to his people. I find that particularly remarkable. Because I think the point, which I've been trying to hammer here, and may illustrate here, is to ask the question, what is the loudest voice in your life? Because God's saying here, that the the farmer's job, that the sower's primary job, is to sow the seed of the word of God into your life, into the church, into the world. To be the loudest voice in life. Your life. He says in verse 7, because life and death and heaven and hell are at stake here, he says in verse 7, other seeds fall among thorns, and the thorns grow up and choke them out. Great and important issues, as we'll learn in a couple verses here, were at stake here. They're screaming for our attention, but the question must be what is the loudest voice in our lives. Our heart's task, our ears' task, the soil's task is to give the word hospitality. This seed is more important than anything else. And let me just say, as I conclude this extremely long first point, don't worry, it's getting, the other ones will be shorter. Let me just finish this point by saying, do you see the dual nature of receiving the word? The dual nature of receiving the word. Because there is the sovereign act of God to quicken a heart, to cause a dead man, dead woman to live that gives us and regenerates us. And then there is the task to eagerly pursue this word of God for the rest of our lives. Verse 10. Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He's saying, Jesus is saying, you hear because I revealed it to you. You hear because I have revealed it to you. Sin, as Ephesians, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.17, has left us with futile minds. And we need the illuminating power of God the Holy Spirit to supernaturally intervene and regenerate our dead hearts. He tells us that his grace is free, it's sovereign, it's unconditional, it's unmerited, it's extravagant grace. And if you're a Christian today, it's the reason that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That God sovereignly took his word, he declared to you the mysteries of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, and in the power of his Holy Spirit, he caused you by that word to understand. He gave you eyes to see, to hear, so that your soul would be delivered from the bondage of sin and the condemnation that sin brings. And then he says, along with that massive theological point, He who has ears, let him hear. Take heed how you hear. Pay very close attention to how you hear. 
Both are held up in this passage. God's unconditional, sovereign, electing electing purposes in Jesus Christ and your massive responsibility to take absolute care in how you hear and how you listen and how you obey and how you build your life on the word of God. Don't ever let those two get confused in your mind. Getting those two confused in your life, in your practice, in your habits, in your mind is deadly. To somehow say, I don't have to take heed, I don't have to listen hard, I don't have to take very careful attention to how I hear, because God has just simply elected me and saved me, is not sound thinking. The way that you persevere in the faith is by listening carefully, attentively, closely to these words. Point one. Point two, the seed of power. Look, the seed... It's obvious, but it needs to be said. The seed releases its power by going deep. That's the contrast between the three, between the four, the other three. The seed releases its power by going deep. Looking at the interpretation of the parable, starting at 3, 18 through 23, the first soil is sown on the path, and it has... No life at all. This is the picture of an impervious heart. A heart that's impervious to the gospel. The seed doesn't penetrate it. Instead it says that the devil like a bird snatches the seed from the sidewalk. Snatches the word away that's been preached. And so maybe that's you. Don't let this be you. You've let yourself get comfortable. The preacher is droning on a little bit. And Satan comes to snatch the preached word. First soil doesn't go down at all. Second soil doesn't go deep enough. Doesn't go deep enough. Says this person has a superficial heart. Verse 20, they immediately receive the word with joy. But then the enthusiasm begins to fade. The conditions become adverse. You can picture the Palestinian landscape here. It's arid. A lot of limestone. There's, the soil's not very deep, so the, the, the dew in the morning can actually cause something to spring up really quickly. But the limestone, the bedrock underneath it, doesn't allow the, the, the roots to go deep. So when that scorching sun comes out, it's burnt. Opposition arises. Or he says in verse 21, tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. So ask yourself, do I find that the trials of my life, the sufferings of my life, that instead of actually shattering my faith, are they actually deepening it? That opposition that far from causing me to abandon Jesus, makes me run to him and cling to him all the more tenaciously. That, that sorrows don't actually rob me of my trust in Jesus, but they make me rest my confidence all the more in a sovereign God whose perfect plan alone enables me to press on, even through tears but with a confidence that all the trials of my life are not aimless and meaningless, but they're purposeful 
and they work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Is that you? Or the third soil is, is maybe the most curious because it does go in deep. But it's not the deepest thing. That's the problem. It goes in deep as everything else. It's as deep as the thorns. It's as deep as the weeds. It's not deeper, though. It doesn't go deep enough. This is the person, verse 22, who hears the word preached, and that seed actually begins to germinate. But unfortunately, the text tells us that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, Jesus says, it chokes the word, and it stops it from having any real chance of life or fruitfulness. And slowly but surely, the cares of the world, they, they crowd it out, they scream louder than the word of God, and it chokes it out. The money has deceived us. We want more. We never have enough. And so we run ourselves ragged. And we never get out of the hole. And our faith in Jesus, our professed Christianity, if it remains at all, is reduced to a show. It's a stifled heart. This is the most curious of all to me. Because these are the things in life which are oftentimes very important. They're things that are vying for equal attention in the soil, in the ear, in the heart. And Jesus is saying, the seed of the word must be the deepest of them all. It must scream louder, reign supreme in the heart and mind, which is the fourth one. The fourth one is the changed heart. This is the one who hears the word and understands that he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another sixty, another thirty. It's a receptive heart. You see how Jesus characterizes it? He says it's a heart that understands the word. It's a heart that understands the word. It understands that it's a revolutionary, life-changing power. It sees the grace of God for you in Jesus Christ. It embraces the liberating power of free forgiveness through faith in him. And do you see? Do you see how this power is released into your life? This power is released into your life through the exhortation of verse 9. That he who has ears, let him hear. This kind of power is worked down into your heart. This kind of power comes through listening, thinking, discussing, applying, and working it in deeper and deeper and deeper. This is that false dichotomy, that false juxtaposition that I warned us of a few moments ago. of, uh, Of ceasing to fight for this kind of power in your life. The word has 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 rooted itself in your heart, and now it's our responsibility, our job, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through one another, through the preaching of the word, to begin to think and discuss and work that gospel message deep down into our hearts. 
It's not a passive activity. We must be consumed by it. Because it is gradual. It's gradual and it's sustained. It's gradual and it's sustained. Let me just give us one illustration. Then I'll move us on to our third point and I'll try to wrap it up here. One illustration of how this works is in Galatians 2.14. And it's one that we've brought up several times. But in Galatians 2.14 is an example of uh, Paul confronting Peter. And what Peter, these are two apostles. And what Peter has done here is he's slipped back into um, a Judaizing community that no longer eats meals with Gentiles. Peter's a, he's a, he's a Jew by birth and by, and by, and by um, pedigree. And he, through the gospel, he knows that he is, that, that those walls and those barriers are come down, but he's slipped back into it. It's a form of racism of sorts. And Paul confronts him. And Paul could have said to him, Peter, you know that is against God's law. You know that's against God's law. You need to do what's right and knock it off. But that's not what he says. He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all. Paul lays down a fascinating principle in Galatians 2.14. He says that there is a conduct, that there is a way of life that is in accordance, that is in keeping with the gospel. What does that possibly mean? It means that there's two ways, at least two ways, that Paul could have confronted and approached Peter. He could have approached him from the moralist perspective, but instead he confronted him from the gospel perspective. He says, don't you know, Peter, that you were an enemy, that you were a stranger, that you were an alien from the household of God? But God in his riches and his kindness sent the Lord Jesus to live among you and to bring you back into God's family? If that's true, how can you possibly have this kind of malice in your heart? Don't you see what God has done for you in Jesus Christ? And that kind of work, that kind of gospel application is the work of getting the seed of the word down into your heart. So that when we become anxious, we become anxious, you must ask yourself, you say, why am I anxious? Because I don't believe that God has the best things in mind for me. But if God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live your life and die your death, he's done the greatest of all possible things for you. How will he not also with him gracious give you all things? Or when you're angry, why are we angry? We could say, stop being angry, and that's appropriate at times to say, stop being angry, right? But why are we angry often? We're angry because we don't think people value our opinion. We're angry because we don't think that we're getting the respect that we deserve. But we have to learn to apply the seed of the word deeper and deeper down into our heart so that it takes greater root, so that when suffering comes, so when things don't go the way that they ought, so when life doesn't go the way that it ought, so that our spouse doesn't do what we think they should do, so when our kids go awry, when the church isn't what the church should be, we can say that God in Jesus Christ does all things well. And it can give us a real peace. This kind of power, this gospel power, is an internal power. It's the seed of the word 
coming out. It's not the external power of moral performance. Moral performance is the external power. That's the wrecking ball. That's the hammer. That's the whip crack that gets everything right for a few minutes. But the seed of the word, that kind of power in our life is that internal seed growing gradually but steadily, which leads us to the third point, the seed of weakness. It's not a hammer that pounds a nail into place. It's not a sword that swipes. It's a seed. And a seed just seems so weak. It's so small. You buy a pack of seeds, and the pack's like this big. And you're like, oh, I'm getting my money's worth. And you open it up, and there's like... like what? It's seemingly weak. It's seemingly insignificant. Because this parable is not just about how people respond to the word. It's about how people respond to Jesus himself. And we know how Jesus Christ came. Because Jesus tells us that there is only one way for seeds to release their power. Seeds can only release their power by becoming weak and dying unless a seed falls to the ground it will bear no fruit and if it's true with the seed and it's true with Jesus himself then it's true with you and it's true with me this is where it all comes together this is where we lead in listening This is where we're attentive to the words of Jesus. This is where we don't come with coercion, wrecking balls, hammers, and swords. It comes by dying. It comes by laying down our will for the sake of one another. He was voluntarily weak for us. He who was rich became poor. He who was all-powerful died at the hands of sinful men. The power of the word is the weakness of the Lord. That's the point. The power of the word is the weakness of the Lord. That's the whole point. That's the point of everything. And nothing else will change you except this kind of power. The message of a crucified, risen Savior becoming weak for your sake. Nothing, nothing, nothing else will break the hardness of your heart. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to understand this powerful and seemingly weak gospel so that in joy we can wholeheartedly pursue your son and seek to obey him with all of our lives. We're grateful and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
we come now to celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus. Celebrating a crucified and resurrected Savior. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a Christian. And by that we mean that you've put all your faith in him. All your hope, your trust is in him for the forgiveness of all your sins and the hope of everlasting life. And you've made that faith public through the waters of baptism. Then the table is open for you. And if that describes you and you're joining us for another fellowship, we are, we're grateful that you're here with us this morning and we welcome you to partake of this supper with us. You can come up row by row starting from the back and um, take the elements back to your seat and one of our elders will lead us to partake of communion corporately.